0: Welcome to the Here Be Dragon podcast. My name is Jake Lefebvre. I'm joined today uh, by Brett Landry, as usual, and today we have a special guest, uh, Kevin Garrett. Kevin is the author. Of Two Tears on the Window, An Ordinary Canadian Couple Disappears in China, uh, written with his wife, Julia. Uh, Kevin's story, as the title of the book suggests, is one uh, that I hope we can glean. I know we can glean a lot from uh, today. So Kevin, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. Very glad to be here. Thank you. Well, Kevin, we want to spend some time talking about your story, about what uh, the Lord taught you in all of this. Uh, But I thought we'd start just by maybe laying the groundwork of sort of why were you in China? What were you doing there and sort of your work prior to, you know, the events that will be uh, talked about in this book?
1: Okay, well, we uh, first went to China in 1984, and we went as English teachers. We went for a year, and uh, during that first year, we were praying, what should we do? And God said, stay another year. In our second year, we were praying, what should we do? And God just said, stay. There was no time limit. And so we ended up staying for 30 years And uh, we lived in seven different cities over those 30 years, and we did things like we taught English, we started a school, we started a couple of companies, consulting company, we had a training center, we had a translation company, we worked with an orphanage. We did a lot of different things over those years, and we studied Chinese as well.
0: Wow. And so over the time uh, in China, eventually you guys move uh, to close to the North Korean border. And sort of what was the ministry that was, that was happening there?
1: Yeah, so uh, let me back up and just kind yeah, of please. fill in how, how we got there. Because we were called to China. We we're working in China in somewhere around 1989. We went on a holiday to Thailand in a retreat center, going through their library, picked up a book. It was on North Korea. As I started reading it, God just said, one day you'll go there. And for me, it was like, well, like now? And uh, over the next years, we just kind of kept our eyes open. And uh, 2004, we came back to Canada for a little bit. And God said, now turn your eyes to North Korea. And over the next couple of years, we got ready. We went there and uh, just made lots of connections beforehand. And um, in a prayer meeting, we started a prayer meeting before we knew anything that we were going to do. We just said, we're going to pray for this because we don't know what we're doing. And um, God said, go to Dandong, which is the city we ended up in, and I'll meet you there. Because he's already there and uh, as a addendum he kind of said oh yeah and start a coffee shop mm. and which was our we liked that idea yeah a lot so uh, that's kind of how we ended up there but we wanted to be able to move more into North Korea to do aid work in the North Korea because it's very different in China and much more difficult
0: so maybe just describe your experience working in Dandong what, what would that was like the roadblocks or maybe the resistance you guys found
1: uh, there We actually didn't find a lot of resistance. Like China itself is a, you know, it's a challenging place because you can't, quote, start a church. You can't, quote, be a missionary or all those kind of things. But you can go in and do business. You can start, uh, you can teach English. We can do all those kind of things. So we went in, wanted to be totally legal, totally up front. So we went in and we didn't wave a flag to say we're Christians. We just went in to say, hey, we'd like to start a coffee shop. Mm. And you know, found someone to help us do that, went to all the different departments, 11 different departments to get approval, which took months. Wow. And, um, you know, you kind of have to get a piece of property and sign a lease and start it, then they give you approval to actually do it. So, it's, it's a, a funny situation. But uh, we did that. We didn't really have any roadblocks except the time it took. And um, we just made sure we, you know, once we started, we paid our taxes and all those kinds of things. And we were kind of, I felt like we were welcomed there. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So you're there. And how long are you in Dandong for? Uh,
1: we moved there in uh, the fall of 2007. And uh, we were there working until 2014, okay. sept- uh, August. What's
2: the connection between uh, like that that sort of northeast Chinese border and North Korea? You know, th- th- it's a river.
1: Yes. So there's a river. It's called the Yalu River. And um, Dandong is the main crossing into North Korea. It's the main bridge that goes there. It's not the only bridge, but it's the main trade route into North Korea. And that's been like that for years and years.
2: And it's, so, I mean, if you're, so if you're from North Korea and, or if you're from China or if you're doing trade back and forth, that is the city where it's happening.
1: That would be the main city, main southern mm-hmm. city. There's a couple more further up north, but they're much more remote and smaller. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm. And the connection points in terms of culture, I mean, you have uh, up in, you know, the, Further up, like you said, north of mm-hmm. Dandong, you've got the, the, the sort of Russian piece that comes down on right. the coast. And then you've got the North Korean, uh, whatever, border across with China. But then is there a cultural, like what's the culture there differently than other places you lived in China?
1: So you have a lot of uh, Korean influence inside China. So a lot of Korean minority people have been there for you know years and years. People have family on both sides. So there's a lot of travel and trade back and forth. Plus, uh, nowadays, in, in the past, you had a lot of North Koreans coming to work in places like Dandong and along the border. It's okay. also a main smuggling route for people and goods. Yeah. Not right in Dandong, but in further uh, remoter hmm. areas.
0: Hmm. So as you guys are working in Dandong, Kevin, is there any sense that the work you're doing... I guess you're always being monitored to some extent while you're in China, but is there any sort of particular sense that you guys are like, this is perhaps, you know, under extra scrutiny uh, by the government powers?
1: Uh, Any work you do anywhere in China, you're watched. And the longer you're there, the more you're watched, the more you're in and out, the more you're watched. We knew the border being a sensitive area would be even more so Mm -hmm. because there's... Just uh, the police presence, you know, seen and unseen is much uh, bigger. Lots of cameras, lots of things. So anything you do on the border is watched. As foreigners, you're watched even more. Mm-hmm. So we knew that. So we just said, we're going to be open. We're gonna. There's no private rooms in our coffee house, which is common in Chinese uh, restaurants and coffee shops. We just said, we're very open. Um, we had Bible studies, kind of morning prayer in our window, hmm. you know, right there. So we weren't trying to hide anything. People asked, we said, yes, we're Christians. And, um, we had lots of people who came to the coffee shop. It, it grew into a really, a, a family and a, a community, almost like a community center.
2: So what, what's the population of that city? And then the region within the city where you're working?
1: So the city itself would be a little under a million, uh, by Chinese standards, fairly small.
2: Yeah. That's like a, that's a village in Chinese. Standards. Yeah.
1: Kind of, kind of like that. Okay. And, um, but the whole region, uh, well, there would be a couple of million within, like, outside of the city. Uh, and then there's, but the city itself, you wouldn't, when you look at it, you think, there's a lot of people here. And it, it is because it's all built up, not, not flat. Yeah. And um, so you get lots of people in and out. And lots of trade and lots of tourists come through there because they want to look at North Korea.
2: Okay. Wow. And so, and that being, like, the port of entry then? If they want to look, you're talking like look across the river at yeah. it or they want to go in?
1: Uh, both. Okay. So you can take day tours in, which is still difficult to do. Um, there's a lot of trade. Uh, the border's open from, you know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. So there's lots of uh, trade that goes across. There's a train that goes across a couple of days, times a day. Um, so every morning you would see lines up, line up with trucks, probably dozens and dozens, probably... Closer to a couple of hundred trucks would line up every day going across, taking things, coming back empty for the most part, but they bring raw materials out of North Korea into China for processing.
2: And so, I mean, a regular day in the life of Kevin and Julia, you know, in that season, because you started other businesses, you were teaching English in different seasons Mm -hmm. and for, you know, different years. Right. But a, a day in the life, what does that look like for you?
1: So day of the life was we had the coffee shop, we had a dozen staff, so it was managing that. We did uh, have other people join us who took over the management, and so we could focus on what was going on in North Korea. But we also did work in the local university. So my wife, Julia, taught uh, in the English department there, teaching you know English for trade, English for hotel, things like that, in order to... I mean, our whole goal of being there is to be a light and to be a witness. So we did that. So it was meeting people for me, meeting people in the coffee shop, making sure things are going well, but also making plans and uh, meeting government officials, mainly North Koreans who would come and we'd want to talk to and relate to and how can we help, what we can do for you. Kevin.
0: You know, this is kind of getting ahead just a bit or maybe foreshadowing where we're going. Uh, but when you go to China, is there like some sort of mental preparation you make? Or you and Julia both make that, you know, we could end up in prison one day. How do you sort of squared that away in your head and you made peace with that? Or, or how, how are you thinking about maybe the persecution that you would uh, face one day?
1: No, we never mm. thought that. Because everything we'd seen in China over 30 years, it was like the most that would happen, you'd get kicked out of China. Mm. And it would be, you know, kind of a slap on the wrist, you're gone, you can never come back. So we had that in our mind. We didn't think we'd ever be arrested. We'd have heard of people being arrested very briefly, a week or something like that, then deported. So, but a couple of weeks before this happened, maybe a month, I started getting this, there was a feeling of unrest and I didn't know what it was. I just like, there's something going on, but I don't know what it was. So I, I really think it was just the Holy Spirit speaking, you know, there's something coming. And uh, we never in our in wildest imagination, Thought we'd be arrested and detained for two years. Mm.
0: So just take us to that to that night set the stage for us what happens?
1: Okay. So a uh, typical day we did some training with the staff it's kind of upgrading training I had been meeting a couple people about uh, an orphanage project in North Korea and we'd been invited to this dinner uh, with a couple we didn't know but through someone we did know who wanted to talk about their daughter studying at the University of Toronto while well, I had graduated from there and it was just like it was a natural thing people want to help their kids get abroad and do something. So very normal thing. We go to this dinner. It's in a very fancy restaurant, which is somewhat normal because if they want a favor from you, they're going to treat you really Mm. well. So we we knew this, and we went there. But as we were leaving, uh, first of all, the daughter never showed up at the dinner. They said she had a toothache. I thought, well, that's odd. Mm. And then as we were leaving, Julie and I were just... uh, Walking down the hallway to the elevator, because the, the restaurant is on four floors, and they have a lot of private rooms, which is common in China. And so we're going down, and we think, there's just something odd about that dinner. I don't know what it was, but it was just really odd. And uh, we go down the elevator, elevator door opens. When we'd first come in, an hour before, it was the lobby was completely empty, one clerk at the desk. When we the elevator door opens, there's probably a couple of dozen people there with cameras. And we're thinking, oh, it looks like maybe it's a wedding. We should get out of the way. But weddings and abductions are different. So we, <laughs> And um, we were abducted, and it was not a, a happy ending. Well, it's a happy ending now. But, and, yeah. and you use the language specifically, too, of, of
0: being abducted
1: and not arrested. Why is that? Because I was not officially arrested until almost eight months later. So if this was... China has what they call residential surveillance. It's not residential, it's like prison, but they don't call it that. And for six months, uh, we were uh, isolated and interrogated. We didn't see each other for three months. Uh, I didn't know Julie was in the same building I was in and all those things, but we were interrogated for those six months. And it was about two months after that that I was actually officially arrested. Okay,
0: and so you're you're taken, and I mean, obviously, I. You're asking why, and what's the, what's the immediate answer that's given to you as to why you've been taken?
1: They said you're a spy. Right. And my thought is, how did they get it so wrong? <laughs> right. And I think, like, but they're insistent, they're yelling, they're screaming, and for months, this is, is like this. They're threatening execution, they're threatening uh, years in prison, and they say you're a spy. And I'm thinking, we were pretty open about what we did. Right. You know, we weren't trying to hide anything, and they're saying we're spies.
2: Because, I mean, there's a number of things that you were doing that are technically illegal in terms of, like, I mean, even even proselytizing or, sh- or sharing of faith in some places in China, depending on the local police force. Right. You can have, you know, I mean, that could be, a, that could be cause for arrest. It could be. Yes.
1: Except we were fairly careful because we lived there a long time. Yes. Mm. And we knew you don't proselytize, but you can answer questions. Yes. Mm. So we just prayed for questions. And the funny thing is when you pray that, people ask questions. Mm -hmm. So we would have, for example, an English corner every night, or every Friday night in the coffee house. Um, We would get up to 100 people, 120 people in there. We couldn't seat that many. So it would spill out into the the sidewalk and things like that. And people just love coming. So we never, ever made the topic about Christ, about God, about anything, even religious. We talked about whatever came to mind. We would make a list of questions and we just go through the topic. Without fail, without us trying, people always asked about the Lord. Yeah. Wow. And uh, that's, if that was proselytizing, then we did it. Right.
0: <laughs> right.
2: I just know that the, some of the conversations I've had with people, it just depends on somebody else's definition of it.
1: Yes. And yes. so,
2: you know, depending on how hostile the situation mm-hmm. is or the context is. But, but here, the, here you are living faithfully for like, you know, I mean, at this point you've been there for how
1: long? In China or in, in the China. city? China. Uh, well, it would be 30, coming up 30 years. Yeah, so you're yeah.
2: 30 years. You, you know your way around the culture. You know mm-hmm. your way around the language. You know your way around the particularities of uh, the way of life. This right. is home for right. you at this point. Mm-hmm. And you're now arrested, or, or pardon me, abducted and put abducted. into residential uh, surveillance right. for spying. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, I don't have that connection.
1: Yeah. I, like, I had, I had no framework to even, like, how could they ever think that? But as they started unpacking things, to me, you know, we had people come through our coffee house that were on their high radar, which Mm -hmm. we didn't know. And so we had reporters who would come through. That was normal. They were doing a story on North Korea. They'd sit in our coffee house, drink coffee, and write the report. Okay, that's fine. We had uh, embassy officials uh, from the British embassy, all different embassies who would come through out of North Korea because it was the closest city. And they would come and they do shopping, you know, have a coffee, and go back to North Korea. And... um, but most of these people we I would talk to them sometimes if I happened to be there but it was nothing that I would ever think would cause us to be arrested or even talked to they're just coming for coffee but the authorities the you know, investigators would say why do you think they came to your house for your place for coffee i said well probably because we had the best coffee in town <laughs> i mean and that was true yeah. I, I felt anyways yes. and we had good food we had good burgers and pizza and all that kind of stuff you know we were the only place in town that had things like that so in my thinking we, there is no reason to think that, yeah, right. that we were spies. So what is the official
0: line given to people? Because I imagine you get abducted and people are like, well, where did Kevin and Julie go? Uh, what is the official line given to people who are waiting for you, who are wondering where you are? What are they told, if anything?
1: Well, the uh, Canadian embassy was told right away, like within probably the next morning. So yeah. we, were, we were abducted, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night on a Monday, August 4th, 2014. And uh, they were told fairly soon, I don't know exactly, but it would probably be in the next morning, and then it, they put it in the Chinese news right away. So then, you know, mm. people monitor that, they see that. Uh, my son, who was in town, my youngest son, he didn't know until later that night or the next morning that we were abducted. Uh, oh. But he learned it from friends who were watching the news.
2: Really? Friends, at, friends in Canada? In or friends, China. Friends in China who were mm-hmm. watching the news, yes. and it's on the news.
1: It's on the news. That... That we you know, China has uh, arrested, they say it arrested or yeah. they never say abducted, uh, you know, two Canadian spies. Yes. And you know, it happened to be us.
2: And your son's going, My parents are spies.
1: Yeah, he says, No. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he my knew. dad's not that cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had no shoe phone or anything. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah. yeah, and so the next little while next couple days for sure the Canadian embassy is trying to scramble around what's going on. Who are we? I mean, we'd registered with them always. So they knew where we were, things like that, but, uh, they still have to investigate who really are we? Could we be spies? You know?
2: So, I mean, what, what are the, so yeah, you could have been, you could have been, (laughs) there needs to be investigation. mm -hmm. What's the first week in detainment look like then?
1: Horrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, because, um, there are, there are, you know, shooting questions at you for at least six hours a day. Mm. Uh, you're a spy, and it, this goes on for six months. Wow. And uh, you're isolated, you can't talk to anyone, there's no phone call, There's um, you're in a remote compound, you're not even in the city. Uh, no one knew where we were. Uh, I knew where we were because I watched as they took us out that night. But um, the Canadian Embassy didn't know, our family didn't know, and the first contact we had was two days later when... We requested to see the embassy, and they sent an official for a thirty-minute visit. And uh, they they didn't know what was going on because it wasn't revealed by the Chinese yet.
0: Wow! And so uh, you're separated from Juliet at this point. Yes. Yeah. So
1: um, I alluded to before, we were in the same building, but we didn't know each other was in the building because they kept us separate. Okay. And they kept us uh, in a room. Um, I was in one room for six months. There was a the only time I went out was for an embassy visit or to use the washroom down the hall. Mm. And otherwise I slept and ate and was interrogated in that room. There was a, a wow. bed, a couple of desks, a few chairs, and that's it. And cameras on the wall.
0: And did you have any personal belongings with you, like a Bible or like, what were you allowed to take with you? Um,
1: well, let me back up again. Yeah. Uh, that night we were taken, we get taken to what's called the uh, ministry of state security building, which is uh, kind of like the FBI of China. And, uh, they made me sign some papers, that's another story. But then they took me to our apartment and um, they ransacked the whole apartment, 18 security people. And I'm thinking, this is a really bad movie, you know, because, and I'm in it. They ransacked the whole apartment towards four or five o'clock in the morning, and they say, get some clothes for you and Julia, which I did, and I grabbed our Bibles. Mm-hmm. And uh, at first they said, you can't have those. And uh, you know, it was really the Holy Spirit in me just stood up and said, well, that's not very nice of you, but I say it in a fairly loud and, you know, powerful voice that was God not me and uh, after a bit of discussion they said okay you can have your bible mm. so from day 1 we had those with us and that mm. those were lifesavers wow mm-hmm.
0: so can you maybe describe uh, even in the first couple of weeks like what is your conversation with God like like what kind of questions are you asking of him what does that look like or sound like rather
1: well the first conversation was and uh, you know fairly desperate you know God get me out of here right now mm. and it was like but it slowly settled down to okay, there's a plan here, I don't know what it is, I don't like this at all, but if I have to be here, then God, and I know you're here, so we're going to go through this together, but you've, uh, I have no strength to do this on my own. Yeah. And so over those next weeks and months and then into two years, it was calling out to God uh, every day, multiple, multiple times mm-hmm. a day, and say, God, I can't do this, yeah. and God's strengthening me to do it.
0: So you're you've been detained for six months of this six-hour day questioning. Yes. What happens after that?
1: So after six months, legally in China, they can only keep you for six months without charging you. And so uh, I was moved to a prison, uh, official prison, nine hundred people in the prison. And Julie was put on uh, officially house arrest, which meant she had many, many restrictions. And there's no, not a freedom as we would think of. And it's they called it bail-pending trial, but it wasn't really bail, but it was certainly pending trial. Uh, I moved into a prison, there was 14 inmates in my cell, and um, I'm sit- I just sit there for the next 19 months. Uh, never leaving the cell except for an embassy visit or uh, a couple times for uh, medical things.
0: These embassy visits, what do those consist of?
1: Uh, an embassy official coming, uh, we have 30 minutes. I can't bring any notes. I can't, I can do nothing. Whatever I want to say, I have to memorize. And they can, later on, they're able to pass letters and pictures to me, which, you know, the prison would go through, make sure they were okay. And then I could keep them or sometimes keep them. And then, uh, so it's 30 minutes of exchanging information. Uh, I'm still not knowing really why we're there because charging us as me as a spy, uh, was about something else that was happening actually in Canada at the time, not really to do with us.
2: Mm. Oh, really? So it was a reaction to something else. Is a reaction.
1: On. So um, about six weeks beforehand, before this, a guy named Bin was arrested here in Canada at the request of the U.S. government, and he was later extradited to the U.S. Uh, on spying charges. Okay. And he actually pled guilty, and he, you know, was put in prison in the U.S. China took us just a few weeks later, China wanted to trade, Canada doesn't trade, and we're stuck in the middle. But I didn't know this for two years. So th- this strings on, I mean, so obviously if that, if that
2: person is arrested here, extradited to the USA, mm-hmm. conf- uh, you know, agrees with the charges that are presented against them, yeah. and is then imprisoned in the United States. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, you're still languishing away in prison. Exactly as yeah. the token who's going to be exchanged, except there's no exchange
1: happening. There's no exchange. So in January 2016, he was extradited to the U.S. And then, you know, I learned all this later that uh, our lawyer, an American lawyer named James Zimmerman, who couldn't represent me, oh, but he could do a lot of behind-the-scenes work, uh, he said, if uh, Subin is extradited, Kevin will be guilty. Mm. And that was exactly what happened. okay, so it was a few months after that three about three months after that I actually went to trial. I had three days' notice I've been sitting there for months and months, not knowing anything. Um, I go to trial. My lawyer, Chinese lawyer at this point says, "Well, we should hear something in two or three weeks. You know you have to understand in China, trials are fairly quick. They have a ninety nine point nine percent accuracy rate or conviction rate, I should say, and um, so I'm thinking, okay, two to three weeks." probably more like four to six weeks. Uh, almost five months later, I'm still waiting. And then I'll just fill you in on this. The uh, September 13th comes along. Uh, as far as I know, it's just another day. I'm just waiting and sitting and asking God for help. And um, they take me out of my cell. They take me back to court. and I almost didn't go because, I, you know, what are they doing? Are they going through with the execution they promised? Or you know sentence me to you know years and years in jail, or what's going to happen? Take me to court it's my verdict hearing. Uh, they read this eight page document, pronounce me guilty, and then within hours uh, less than a day and a half later, I was on a plane back to Canada. I was deported wow
2: so you've been you'd been between the detainment center after the abduction plus prison you're mm-hmm. nineteen months. Uh, no, altogether it was 25 months. So it was 20, 25 11, yeah. months
1: altogether. Two years, one month, 11 days, and a few hours. And then you get put on a plane. Yes. And I'm in absolute shock. Uh, so when I... I They hold the plane for me. They put me... Take me to the airport, which is three hours away from where we were. And um, I get on this plane. The last passenger on this plane, they're holding it just for me. All these... A dozen security people take me to the door of the plane, make me turn around, take a picture to say I was I got on the plane... I get on there, and there's a, an embassy official and uh, my American lawyer who I'd never met before, and um, I was deported. But I was so in shock, I just like, I, I couldn't even begin to relax until we were actually out of Chinese airspace, because mm-hmm. I didn't. There have been so many disappointments along the way, and I had to keep going back to God, and say, God, you know, and I came, many times I came and said, I can't do this anymore. I remember one in particular, I was, um, we had an outdoor area which is the same size of the of the cell and it was so not very big and uh it was just empty it was a cement pad brick walls and a cage on one side and on the roof so it was our outdoor time supposed to be let out there twice a day for an hour or two never happened occasionally it happened Uh, i went out there and i just one of those days i was just feeling incredibly down and um Hanging onto the bars so no one would really see me. And I was just crying go out to God and say, God, I can't do this anymore. Mm. And uh, looking down and in front of me, all of a sudden I see this bright yellow dandelion in the dirt and rubble and grayness and drabness that's there. And I just felt like, God, you just put that there for me because it wasn't there before. Mm. And that just changed the atmosphere. But God did things like that over and over and over again every day and every time I asked. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. Kevin, so we we've we kind of jumped ahead to to, yeah. to leaving uh, China on the plane, which praise God. Yeah, let's jump ahead there every day of the week. Um, but maybe go back, talk about the the prison experience in yeah. terms of, I mean, having your Bible there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, much of the New Testament we read, Paul's writing from prison, uh, John's writing from exile on Patmos, right? Um, like. Was there any sense of like, like these people are speaking my language or like there's like some sort of collegiality with the biblical authors when you were reading it? Like, how, did, how did that experience work?
1: It was incredibly comforting. Hmm. Um, but you read things like, well, Paul got you know, food delivered in prison. And I right. thinking, well, he had, a, he had perks <laughs> I didn't have. <laughs> but um, it was incredibly comforting. Like I see it in a whole new light now, you know, those types of things. that This is, the, in one sense, the normal Christian life right it's a normal new testament life for sure and uh i was able to have books in prison so the embassy every month would bring you know a dozen books or whatever so i read a lot of books some were about prison some were about other things you know one of the first books i read was called if i perish i don't know how i end up getting that book wow. but it was uh, it was it was comforting but not.
2: <laughs> so it wasn't like you are putting in an order for books that you no. wanted that would just really sustain your soul while you were there. No. You, were, you were getting whatever the embassy brought you.
1: Yeah, and it came through pastors, through friends, through my wife, through many people who just gave books, had to get them to the embassy in Beijing. Beijing had to bring it to Dandong, and then we had to exchange books. So 12 or 14 books a month I would get, um, sometimes some newspapers with that, Chinese newspapers, not uh, Canadian. And um I would read whatever I had, and usually I'd read it two or three times because I, I had nothing but time mm. in prison. And it was, uh, in in some ways, and this may sound odd, but I missed that time mm-hmm. because I had hours and hours every day to do nothing but read and worship and then wow. spend time with the rest of the inmates in my cell.
0: Wow,
2: Do you know what's going on with your family then? Like, Are you getting updates in your 30-minute meetings with the embassy where they're saying, hey, uh, Julia's good, the kids are good? Yeah, I am, okay. but getting- I'm
1: only getting that once a month. Okay. So they come once a month for 30 minutes, and it's hard to convey everything. So I hear news, like I hear my father's had a stroke. Uh-huh. I have to wait 30 days to find out what's happening now. So it's really difficult. And, you know, our family's going through things because, you know, our all our kids are, um, well, three of them were out of China at that point. Our youngest, who was 17 at the time, was just about to go to college, and she's, You know, her life's on hold. What do I do? My parents aren't here. Uh, How am I going to do this? And the other kids were incredibly good. Um, They would send notes of encouragement and things like that. But they, uh, my two sons were basically the spokespersons. Our youngest son, Peter, was actually in Dandong. He was on a Canada-China scholarship studying in China during this time, and he stayed the whole time. And then our oldest son, uh, he has a company here in Vancouver. He became kind of the spokesman to the media for people.
2: So are, p- are people here tracking with that story then? Like is this 2014? So oh, yeah, 2014,
1: yeah. 2014 uh, it's in the news. It's frequently in the news. And uh, if you look up our names, you'll find sure. lots and lots of stories. Something that we found out later was that Wired Magazine did a really good article on the backstory of all this, that many things that we didn't know. So it was about a year and a half ago or so. If you look that up, that's a really good place to start, Wired Magazine and our name, and you'll find a, a good backstory. And that's talking the backstory of the, the... Of the whole abduction and why it happened. And and the, yeah, the spy who's yeah, here, who's yeah.
2: you know, being asked by the United States to be right. arrested in Canada. Yeah. So I don't know if this is something that's, that's pertinent to the conversation, but th- th- this is happening again. Exactly. So the Huawei executive mm-hmm. that the United States... Meng Wanzhou. Yes. Mm-hmm. They said, could you arrest her? And she's here in Vancouver yes. and she's arrested. And then immediately there's a response. Yeah, 10 and days later. 10 days. Was it 10 days? 10 days. There's two men... Who are, were they Canadian businessmen?
1: Uh, one was a former diplomat. He was a diplomat on leave, uh, Michael Korvig, and the, the other was Michael Spavor. He's a businessman doing work in North Korea.
2: Okay, and so now they're arrested and in, in, or, or abducted. I'm not sure. Have they been formally arrested?
1: Um, I believe they've been formally arrested now. It's been over a year. Yes. So it took them a little longer to get to that point. Um, they're still uh, in detention, like a detention centre. And... Um, You know, the hard thing for them is they haven't had consular access for, well, since January now because of COVID, uh, which is incredibly difficult. Like, Mm. I look forward to those 30-minute meetings once a month. I would count down the days I knew about when they would come. I never knew for sure, but it's incredibly difficult. But the whole story for them is exactly the same. Uh, Trumped up charges, falsely accused, unjustly accused, and they probably have an idea what's going on, but they don't have the full story. Wow. How many people
2: through the course of, like, do we have, like, some statistic on Canadians who have, this has happened? I mean, because you're obviously now, we would say, not the only one that this right. has happened to. Right. But has this been something that's been pervasive in, in history, or is this something that's more
1: recent? We were the, probably the first in many, many years. Okay. Um, maybe the first ever charged as spies uh, between Canada and China. Um, now the two Michaels are the second. There's other uh, people in prison now, uh, Canadians in China for different reasons. Some actually have committed crimes, yes. Um, I know uh, at least a couple who are, again, trumped up charges, but it's not in the media. Okay. Goodness
2: gracious.
0: Kevin, what passages in Scripture were sort of those anchoring points for you while you were in prison? Or was it like just the entirety of, of, of all of Scripture?
1: <laughs> well, it was the entirety because every day, you know, His his mercies are new every morning, and it was it was new, and it was alive his word really was alive to me but one uh, scripture he spoke to me at the very beginning in exodus uh, is i think it's 13. so moses is with the israelites they're at the red sea and the israelites are complaining you know the egyptians are coming the red sea's in front of us we're between a rock and a hard place what do we do and moses you know god speaks to moses and says tell him to stand still watch and watch what i will do and he says the Israelites you see today or the egyptians you see today you will not see tomorrow he says, I will fight for you. And that was so incredibly comforting to me. It's like, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I should do. I'll just stand here and watch what God will do. My goodness. Tell me
2: about, I mean, you're, you're sitting in there, you're you're receiving this type of encouragement mm-hmm. and, and sustaining power of the Spirit in the midst of it. Yeah. But you said you're in a cell at a certain point. You're in a, you're not completely isolated. You're in a cell with, you said, 13, 14 people. 14, 14, yeah. 14 people. Uh, what are those relationships like? How how does that unfold?
1: In in some ways that was better than isolation because I could talk to those people. I mean, they're all there for various crimes, anything from petty theft to murder. And I had um, probably 80 or 90 people pass through my cell in those 19 months I was in the, actually in the prison. And so, you know, all different characters came through. Some who were happy to talk to me, some who didn't want anything to do with me and that's fine, you know, because they're, they know I've been charged as a spy. They think I'm a spy and all that type, type of stuff. But uh, I made some good friends in there. You know, they would come and go, but I, I made friends in there and I had good relationships and saw how the judicial system worked or didn't work in China. Right.
2: But you, I mean, you're the, the quote-unquote spy sitting there with his Bible open. Yeah. That's, that's got to be a different thing than they would expect.
1: So, you know, I mentioned about our um, English corners we had at the coffee shop. So I just continued what we did outside. I said, God, let them ask questions. I'm not gonna stand on my little wooden bed and you know, proselytize or preach to them, but let them ask questions. But I'm just gonna live my life here. And um lo and behold, they ask questions. Yeah. You know, the one little guy, it's it's in our book, um, his name we named him Henry in the book, you know, to protect him. But uh he first came in and he said To me, you know, he's trying to be all friendly, all nice, trying to comfort me because I was not a happy camper when I first got into the cell 318. And he says, Kevin, just think of this as a long holiday, you know, (laughs) which really didn't help. Thanks, Henry. (laughs) (laughs) But then um, he sees me getting up early every morning because I got up like 3 or 3.30 every morning. I mean, and God would wake me up. There's no alarm clock except the lights are on 24-7. So I would wake up and that would be my quiet time from then until about close to six in the morning when the bell would go off and the whole prison has to get up. And um, after a little while, he said, Kevin, I think God's giving you a chance to study. You know, that made sense. So, you know, God's seminary is a little different than our version of it. Mm -hmm. And then after a short time, and he was being sent off to the big prison because he was convicted because, you know, 99.9% are. And he says, Kevin, I want to believe like you. And that happened numerous times over those 19 months. Mm -hmm. People ask questions. A university professor came to me and he just said, Can you just tell me some stories in the Bible? Hmm. Uh, another guy would come, you know, he said, My, my mother talks like you. Can you tell me more about this Jesus? Hmm. You know, and even the prison warden came by one day and uh, she, she has this very booming voice, you know, it's very loud, very stern. And she says, uh, I see you're reading your book, the Bible. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, what's, what's she going to say now? She didn't come by very often. She says, that's good. And I, it just dawned on me, what did she just say? Right. She told all the prisoners in that cell, in the cells adjacent, and really to the whole staff and 900 people in that prison, that reading the Bible is good. Hmm. And how could that have happened unless I was there reading my Bible? Right.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Kevin, we're obviously
0: just not spiritual beings, we're physical beings. And you yeah. mentioned uh, I think previously that you had some medical issues. Like, how are you doing physically?
1: Terrible. Terrible. I mean, first of all, you have to understand there's incredible pressure and tension on you living under those kind of circumstances. You, you know, no idea what's going to go on. They threaten you with execution. That plays on your mind. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started having physical issues. Uh, first in the interrogation for six months, my foot went numb. And I, I couldn't move it. And it turns out because I was crossing my legs too much during the interrogation that apparently I damaged some nerves in the back of my knee. So that takes three months to get better. And it's actually today, it still bothers me to some extent. Uh, I had appendicitis. They said, oh, we don't want to do surgery because it's dangerous. And I saw results of surgery in prison. I I understood danger. I had heart issues, I had... So so hang on, appendicitis, did they treat it? (laughs) They treated it with uh, two weeks of IV antibiotics. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So It didn't burst, obviously. No. Or you wouldn't be here. Exactly. Oh! Exactly. So I had that, I had heart issues, they couldn't control my blood pressure, Uh, and they didn't tell me all this, I kind of picked up on it, because they would come and take my blood pressure and check on me every day. Because I was actually put in the medical wing. So when I say there's 14 in my cell... That was better than the average cell, which had 28, the exact same size. So wow. I, um, you know, my blood pressure, they couldn't control. My heart rate, they couldn't control. And I, part of it is, and I'm just living under incredible pressure and tension. And let me fast forward the story to when I get out and get deported. I, get, I go see a doctor, a specialist, because there's serious issues. And the doctor was really wise. She just said to me, um, we're going to do some tests. We're going to do all this kind of stuff. And she waited a few weeks and came back with the results and she said you know whatever was there isn't there anymore yeah and you know god just brought healing well and you got to think that the environment
2: you're in is causing the 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 intense Mm -hmm. pressure and stress Mm -hmm. is you know i mean manifesting physically in your body i mean obviously appendicitis Mm -hmm. is one thing but heart rate heart you know blood Mm -hmm. pressure all of that those are consequences of the situation you're in not just your health
1: exactly and I had you know serious back issues too because you're sleeping basically on a wooden board for months at a time years at a time yeah
2: Mm -hmm. and and I mean uh dietary stuff like what are you getting in terms of food
1: well uh interesting thing in prison you have to buy your food you know so there's you know our prisons are quite different than that and so I did figure out that 28.4 percent of the time there's no food to buy and then, part of the other time when there is food to buy, you don't want to buy it because it just looks awful. And, you know, I would go by the other cellmates. They would look and say, Oh, no, not buying that today. And uh, I would say, Okay, I'm not either because it doesn't look good.
0: And this is like fresh food or this is like dry noodles or what? No, way?
1: no, it's uh, fresh food. They cook okay. it every day. So it's okay. hot, except it's not always hot by the time it gets to our corner of the prison. And uh, it ranges from you know $5 to $50 depending if there's meat in it or whatever. And so and you have to pay for this and so money has to come from outside the prison onto an account that is yours so you can pay for your food to live in prison. But you also if you want a toothbrush, you have to buy that. You want toilet paper, you have to buy that. You want water to drink, you have to buy that too.
0: So how is that account being funded?
1: Uh through surprisingly and amazingly through uh, some house churches that we knew through people who would send money to my wife who would put it onto our account or through the embassy in uh, just amazing ways and it would cost uh, five to six hundred dollars a month to live in prison <laughs> that's what, a, what a, I mean salt in the wound yeah, of, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know that that's
2: just wild but
1: prisons in China are uh, to make a profit or minimum break even right
2: mm-hmm. there's, there's other places in the world where it's like that too yes yes so, yeah. With, with no further comment from me. Okay. Uh, th- at this time, though, uh, is Julia,
1: she's in house, uh, under house arrest. Is she in Dandong? She's in Dandong. And she stays there until um, uh, about three weeks before I'm deported. And no one knew, knew I was going to be deported, uh, least of all me or the Canadian embassy. And so they tell her, go home, make some money. Kevin's going to be in prison a long time. And obviously, I need money to live in prison. So she goes back. And then September 13th happens, I get, and then, you know, 36 hours later, I'm deported. And um, they had promised her that, you know, when I actually go to trial or go to the verdict, to hear the verdict, that she could be there. But there was no time for that. It happened very, very suddenly.
2: And uh, her experience then during your incarceration is the idea that, um, I mean, she, so you're, you're pending trial the whole time. So she's also right. living with the unknown of what's going on. Right. She's only getting uh, embassy updates once a month from right. your 30 minute interactions right. with them right is she then continuing to run the business is she no
1: the know? the moment we were taken they shut the business So everything seized everything was seized they seized all our assets all our money everything anything electronic uh, which we didn't get back yeah and um she has to live there again she has no money to survive either so it's the same thing you know miraculously god provided her sister was able to come over and bring money you know there's things like that that happened um And there she's being watched too. She's not free. There's uh, two or three officers sitting outside our apartment where she was able to go back to who watch her from morning till night. And uh, if she goes to the market, they go to the market. She goes anywhere. and She had to get permission to go anywhere.
2: Okay, so she's saying, can I get permission to go get some groceries? And they say yes or no, and then they accompany her wherever she goes. Exactly. And the... uh, I'm, I'm just trying to get a picture in my mind of the the, the fullness of what that experience looks like because you said your 17 year old daughter is there as well
1: so uh, our youngest son was there youngest he was 21 at the time our youngest daughter had just gone back to canada just before okay. we were taken okay
2: so she was here right uh, in
1: in I'm guessing- uh, she ended up in edmonton okay uh, she was the summer was spent with a, a cousin in calgary in preparation for going to college uh, our other daughter was in Edmonton at the time, and our oldest son was in Vancouver. Okay.
2: And I'm, I'm just, you said that you know, some of the provision that God uh, brought to the situation was coming through some of the house churches that you were in relationship yes. with. That's in Dandong, or is that mm-hmm. from all over the country?
1: Uh, mostly in Dandong, because it was difficult, and they had to be very quietly, carefully done. Julie would wake up one morning, there's some money s- stuffed under her door. People would come in the middle of the night and put it under the door. Yeah. You know, things like that. And the, the people
2: that, like, so you're probably, I'm guessing, part of a worshiping community while you're there.
1: Yeah, we were careful. We didn't attend a Chinese church there. Uh, we would sometimes go to the government church, but even that, that was rare. But we had our our team, our group of people, would meet together. Because we were, again, careful what we could, knew what we could and couldn't do.
2: How big was your team at the time?
1: Uh, about eight or nine people at the time. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So like some of the quieter house churches that are there anyway. yes. It's yes. basically you have your own but not in name. You've got your own group who are gathered together, studying the scriptures, worshiping, praying. Yes,
1: every week and, you know, yep. and during the week as well. Yep. And um, just a funny story, if we go back a few years, you know, we were spending a bit of time in Canada, we go to church, we come back, and our daughter says, so when are we going to church? And she's thinking our living room church is church, not these what we have here now. Right. And so it's just kind of funny how our kids adjusted or didn't.
2: Right. So you go to the the corporate worship gathering on a Sunday morning and she doesn't think that's...
1: She doesn't think that's church. Right. She's going, hang on a second. We <laughs>
2: just went to that thing, but... Yeah.
1: yeah what, what was that again?
2: My goodness. I mean, it, it really is what you're formed in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. beautiful. So fast
0: forward, you get on the plane, if we can go there. Yeah. Kevin, you get on the plane, you sit down, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. I mean, to to, under, to make a massive understatement yes. as you leave you know Chinese airspace. Yeah. Do you also like, and this might be totally off-base, but do you also like order a scotch or something? Or like, is there like, like, like what happens? Like, I mean, what is your visceral response in that moment?
1: Well, the stewardess came by offering coffee. Yeah. And you've got to understand, I hadn't had a good coffee and we ran a coffee shop okay. uh, for two years. So I'm thinking... I think I'd like a coffee. <laughs> yeah, I, I've and never
2: had a good coffee on an airplane. I'll say that well, to begin with, but yeah. I, I suppose
1: better than the, what you had had. Uh, exactly. Okay. Okay. And okay, uh, okay. so five cups later, I think, I, th- I think I better stop. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So and it was and then the plane was on its way to Tokyo, then on to Vancouver, and um, they took me into the lounge because they make arrangements for that, and they said, "Oh, you can have a shower." And I'm thinking, and I get in to sh- have a shower because it's been a while. And I think this is the first shower I've had on my own in two years. Yeah. Because in prison, uh, the bathroom is glass-walled. Three guys go into the shower at a time because hot water is very limited, and it always runs out uh, before the whole room is finished. And so it's kind of a rotation system. You go in, you get wet, you move over, you lather up, and you turn around and you go out. It's it's not pleasant, anyways. But. Mm-hmm.
2: So you're you're having a shower in the Tokyo airport Air Canada lounge or something yep. like that. Mm-hmm. You're having your first shower mm-hmm. by yourself in two. Nine and nine I'm years. just
1: thinking, I think I want to stay here a little while yeah. because it was just it was so nice. <laughs> yeah, and and shocking too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean we talk about culture shock when we go like you know for to a place for like a year and mm-hmm. then come back and like talk about culture shock times like a million. You come, go for a prison in China to like this Tokyo lounge. It's relatively decadent yes uh, like how are you processing that even even mentally
1: I'm, I'm really just in shock and just kind of you know the embassy official and the lawyer are saying we should go here now i said okay i'll go there now. right because i'm just like wow this is... and you don't realize the sh- the kind of shock you're in you're just kind of you're moving along with the flow of things whatever's happening
2: so, so you get to tokyo there are you able to hop on the phone and and make a phone call? Or yeah. Do, do you even know who to call or where they are? I don't know or, numbers. You don't know anybody's or, phone number. I know
1: nothing at that point. Right. So our lawyer had arranged that I we would call. So we get to the lounge and we call my wife and and that and it's still hours before I'm going to see her. You know, it's you know it's middle of the night basically. But, but you haven't her. talked to her for over two years. Uh, no no. I saw her a couple times over those two years, but not. We haven't talked. Mm. No. So it was uh, very emotional, yeah. as you can imagine. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, 12 hours later, I land in Vancouver.
2: And your family's here.
1: Yeah. And the amazing thing was all the kids were able to get to Vancouver to meet me. It was, I think I arrived at 9.30 on uh, September 15th, which happened to be my oldest daughter's birthday also. Oh, wow. So I just said, I came the longest for your birthday, you know. <laughs> and I'm the only one actually who brought her a gift because we were walking past something in the Tokyo airport and I said... I don't have any money. I have nothing. Like, I had to borrow some. Can I buy something? So I bought her a gift in the Tokyo, Tokyo airport. Oh, wow.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you describe that moment of being reunited with your family?
1: Yeah. Um, even thinking about it now, it's very emotional because yeah. it was, um, yeah, it was incredibly good. Um, you know, I'd missed two years of their lives. I'd missed the birth of our second grandson. You know, there's all sorts of things that, you're going through and you just, you don't know how to handle it. And um, there's a few people there, our family and a, a pastor and another, two pastors were there. And uh, the border security people were absolutely incredible. They were so accommodating and so friendly. They even brought a dog in for the, the grandkids to play with while they were waiting for me to arrive. You know, it was, they were really, really good. But it was, um, you feel like things are, oh now things are back to normal, but they're not you know because 2 years have gone past and everyone's gone through a lot of stuff in those 2 years and it takes it takes quite some time to get back together yeah mm-hmm. so this is
2: September 15th 2016 2016 so here we are almost 4 years later yes. mm-hmm. and you've you've had time to rebuild mm-hmm. those you know those, I mean, you never get back those moments you lost, no, no. but you've had time to rebuild new memories and and to understand what their experience was, even right. as they seek to understand your experience. Uh, what did that do within your family now that you look back on it? I mean, is there I mean, obviously, like I said, you you lost something that you can't mm-hmm. ever get back. It was right. taken from you, but at the same time, you've gained something that you could have otherwise never like the experience that you had. And, and like when people go through these traumatic experiences, it changes you, yes, and it changes those who know you and mm-hmm. who hear your story, but I'm guessing it changes those who are closest to you as well.
1: What has that done? Um, I think it's made all of our kids and us stronger, in a sense, or certainly much more understanding of who God is. I mean, that would be probably the main thing. Um, you know, we, we're going through this COVID season right now, right? And... All I can tell the people, tell people is that this is far better than prison. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not yeah. so bad, you know, really. Yeah. It's hard. It's it's not easy, I know, especially if you've lost a job or things like that. But, you know, I've learned that God is who he says he is. Mm-hmm. And he's he's present and he's at work, seen or unseen, he is he's doing that. And so our kids have come out stronger in, in that way and knowing that, you know, God is real. God really is who he says he is.
0: Mm-hmm. Kevin, so you're deported from China. I imagine, I could be wrong here, that you can't go back to China.
1: I don't think they'd ever give me a visa to go back. Right. Um, so we get back and it's like, now what do we do? Because like kind of our life work is gone. It's been taken out from under, under us. And uh, you, you know, a, a counselor talked to us at one point and he said, this is one of the only things that ever made sense to us was, don't make any major decisions for 18 to 24 months. And for whatever reason, it's like, okay, that sounds good. So we won't do anything. And we, I mean, we did share in some churches. We, we still do at some point. But we didn't make any plans for what's next. And I think that was very freeing. And we had incredibly supportive people and friends who supported us. You know, people gave us a basement suite to live in. They said, stay here as long as you want. There's no rent. Whatever you want to do, it's okay. And so those kind of things just really brought healing. And after about the 18th month mark, um, All of a sudden, one day I woke up and I think, I think I feel normal. Wow. But I didn't know I wasn't normal. Right. You know, and I'm not back to what I was. I'm changed, I'm different, but there's a more of a normality now after 18 months. And then it was, you know, God was saying, move back to Vancouver. And then the doors started opening. So we're involved overseas again, uh, not in China and not in North Korea, but we are involved overseas in Southeast Asia.
2: And so are you traveling in and out? Um, we are,
1: except during this season. Yes, we're, we're not traveling no, anywhere. Nobody's going anywhere right now. Right, yeah. right. So we're doing that, and we've had to cancel two trips overseas already. We're working in a country that is, um, has similarities to China, uh, but much in, in many ways more complex, uh, much poorer. And uh, we just we thought, how can we learn a new language? How can we fit in here? But when we first got invited and we went with some friends and... Um, We started talking to local people and shared a little bit of our story. They said to us, Oh, you get us. Mm. You know, basically, we've been in prison all our lives, like a prison. You get us. Wow. So I thought, Wow, I guess I never thought that, but I guess we do. Wow. I first
2: uh, met you, Kevin. I was preaching at a a local church. Yes. And you were there to share your story Mm -hmm. as part of uh, their Sunday gathering. Right. And so you share the story, and I'm supposed to get up and preach after. So you can, you, you can imagine, I've like yeah. I've got a sermon ready to go, and yeah. I'm sitting on the front row going, and they didn't tell me that, that you were coming as a guest. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to you tell the story. And I'm thinking, uh... Why isn't that guy preaching? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, going, I'm going like, let's maybe, you know, so I'm, I'm in my head. You, you probably have had this experience, yeah. right, where you're rethinking everything mm-hmm. in the moment of what you have to do immediately. Right. And I'm going, okay, how am I going to, preach this sermon following this story, and I can't remember what I was preaching and nobody else can either, I remember, <laughs> but, I, but I remember your story, yeah. and, I, and I remember sitting there thinking to myself, like, I can, I can completely pivot and, and change, and I mean, the, certain, the, the ripple effect of what you've just shared has warmed people's hearts to right. a degree that is very difficult to do mm-hmm. um, just by opening the scriptures and teaching. And we open the scriptures and teach every single Sunday, mm-hmm, but there's right. something going on when mm-hmm. you hear something like this. And so, I mean, that was when we first met and, uh, and I, you know, I've been chasing you since to, to yeah. get you to come on the podcast and tell your story. And, and, uh, I just find it so compelling, uh, to hear not just what you've been through. And, and I mean, you've given us a window into mm-hmm. the experience, which is so helpful yeah, um, because it's, it's so foreign to us, uh, in, in almost every conceivable way. mm mm-hmm. So you know, we, if we've been visiting people in prison, you know, I I know what that's like here. It's different there. Right. If we if you've been a prisoner here, it's different there. If you've right, like on literally every level, yes, mm-hmm. um, it's it's completely different. And yet here you are, and and you know, recovered to the degree that that you can, um, and and I'm sure looking and longing for that day when when all things are made new, mm-hmm. and and all of that happens, but. I mean, if you were to, and this is a big question, and I know that your book points to some of these realities, but summing this up, like this, this life-altering experience for you and your family, what are a couple things, maybe one thing is, is maybe what you want to say, or a couple, that you go, here's what I've done differently with my life that may not be evident, it may not be mm-hmm. seen, it may not be something that, that other people, but what's, what's like a couple of those pivotal, like the, 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 it's the, the, the fulcrum on which everything else turns in your life at this point because of what happened?
1: I think there would be two things at least. Uh, one would be a calmness that, you know, if something comes our way, it's like, okay, God, you know, you know, like COVID, uh, he's fully aware. And I still have the habit and I, I keep it, you could say religiously, getting up early every morning and just spending an hour or two with the Lord Reading, praying, sometimes just going over one scripture. Sometimes it's a song. Sometimes it's it's different things. But just spending that quiet time uh, with Him, and that is so energizing and peaceful, and you could say fulfilling in a sense. And knowing that, you know, no matter what happens, God is present, and He's at work. I mean, that's John five fifteen. Always at work, right? And present is you know Psalm forty six one. He's always present. And so, what are we worrying about? right? We just call out to him, and it might be a dozen or a hundred times a day, but we call out to him, and he answers. Like, in prison, he did that. Like, sometimes it was through a song. It would just be dropped into my heart. Sometimes it was a kindness in the cell. Sometimes it was just reading the word. I remember, uh, I mean, there's there's many different stories I could tell, but how God answered in the moment, and answered oftentimes before I asked. Yeah.
2: Yeah. To know that you're known, and that he's aware yeah. of all of the negative circumstances that are outside mm-hmm. of your control. They're not yeah. outside of his.
1: Exactly. The, the last thing I would say that's become uh, burning in me is that we have to tell others. Mm. We have to proclaim the hope we have. You know, we must, because there is no life, there is no other hope except in Jesus.
0: Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, Kevin, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come and, and talk to us and encourage us. Um, Wow! Uh, again, the book is Two Tears on the
1: Window." Yeah, and there's a website for that.
2: Fantastic! G- yeah, give us the uh, give us the details. How can people get in touch with you on yeah. this stuff? How can they read your content? How can they yeah, hear yeah? If your story? you go
1: to all one word two tears on the t
2: w o t e a r s on the window dot yeah. com. Yes, I wasn't gonna spell the whole thing. <laughs> you <Yeah, yeah, laughs> oh, gotta like, do the whole thing here. Mm.
1: Good. Uh, the book's available on Amazon, Kindle as well, Kobo. Um, I encourage people to read it if they want to know more. I mean, there's contact on the website if they want to actually contact us. We, we actually do read mm. those things that people send, and we actually reply. Mm. <laughs> That's
2: fantastic. Amazing. Thankful to have you here. Thankful to have you close by. Yeah, and, we're uh, glad thank- to be here. thankful the Lord's open doors uh, to continue the good work that you're doing in uh, yeah. other nations. And, yeah, we just pray the Lord bless you in that. Amen. And thanks for taking time to come and encourage us. Well, glad to,
1: and glad to be here. And thank you for uh, both you guys uh, for inviting me down. Yeah. Awesome. And for the free water. <laughs> That's right. Free, socially distant water. Yes. <laughs> Physically distanced,
2: <laughs> cleansed with, with hand sanitizer and Clorox Absolutely. bleach wipes. Amen. Good. All yes. right. Thank you. All right. Bless you.
0: Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at
2: herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.